back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday, the 22nd day of August. I think actually last week I called it the 15th day of April. If I did my mistake, I apologize on that. I mean, how could I get this month so wrong when you could argue for personal reasons that it's my favorite month of the entire calendar year? But, no, I digress there. A lot to talk about today. A lot I want to uh, rant, rave about, you know, get some thoughts in on the Mets, some football stuff, as well as um, mixing some basketball a little bit later on. But got to talk about what, for the last about six weeks now, has been the angst of my sports fandom. And quite frankly, I did not think that we would be sitting here on this Monday afternoon talking about them like this. But quite frankly, it's just... No, I I don't know. It's impossible sometimes lately to watch the New York Yankees. Quite frankly, the only reason I still watch them is because I'm a fan. If I wasn't a fan of them, I would have no reason to watch them. They on some nights have provided no hope, no spirit, no... uh, you know, lacking the emotion that this fan base has from lacking the intensity, the want to win that this fan base has. Because, you know, there have been moments over this last, whatever it's been, six, seven week stretch here in which they've played around 330 ball. I mean, since July 9th, they're 13 and 25. That's the mark of a bad team. If I had told you on August 22nd they'd be uh, 74 and 48 prior to the season with how annoyed people were about some of the moves that they made, you would have been like, all right, that you know that that's a, a good record. You would have been happy with being in first place in the American League East. But your expectations based on how you get to a certain place – have to change, especially when the team was at one point 61 and 23, and now has been 13 to 25 since July 9th, has played like garbage, and it's 
the entire team. It's not like you can point out one thing and say, all right, that's holding this team back. It's been pitching. It's been offense. It's been defense, which was a trademark of this team the first couple of months of the season. Remember how much we were talking about how it's been so night and day with moving Glaber off of shortstop, having a real defensive catcher back there in uh, Trevino. Well, now you've seen, you know, poor plays in the field uh, by IKF, who has not been uh, good defensively this year. You've seen a mess by Aaron Hicks when he's out there, whether he's playing center or left. Josh Donaldson has had some questionable plays uh, recently, although there was a play he had the other day where it should have been an easy double play went into right field and LeMahieu showed little to no effort to uh, try and catch this ball. He kind of lollygagged. It should have been an error on DJ rather than the error placed on Donaldson. Then you mix in the the fact that this bullpen is a mess and Clay Holmes ha, uh, now on the IL has fallen apart compared to what he was the first three months of the season. And there's no one that you go to out there that you really feel good about. There's no one, you know, there's no Michael King. He's out for the year. No Chad Green. He's out for the year. Jonathan Lewisaga, uh, when healthy, has been an up and down roller coaster uh, this year. Aroldis Chapman, we know what a mess it's been in his likely final year as a New York Yankee. And, you know, the best guy that they have in that bullpen, quite frankly, is the kid uh, Ron Marinaccio. Problem is, he hasn't been able to stick on the roster because he's the only guy on the team that has minor league options. So every time they get in one of these crunches as far as uh, the the bullpen is concerned. He keeps getting sent to the minors. And then you take this rotation where, you know, you'll get one great start from Cole where he doesn't get uh, run support. And then he'll, he'll have a start where you're expecting him to win. You need him to win. And he implodes in the fifth inning like he did uh, the other day. Tyon's been up and down since uh, the first couple of months of the season. Cortez has been the only consistent guy in this rotation and you know Montas has been a mess since coming here and it really reflects poorly on Brian Cashman the way he's pitched when you consider he gave up JP Sears in that trade and Sears has been really good for the A's so far and he traded Jordan Montgomery for a backup outfielder and Harrison Bader, who we're not even sure if we're going to actually see this guy take the field and, oh, I don't know, do this weird concept. It's called actually play baseball for the Yankees this year. And he's been uh, lights out for the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, you know, what you add to this is not just is there like this doom and gloom feel over the Yankees uh, right now. But there's also really no accountability held to, you know, this team uh, as of late. 
There's no, you know, if you play badly, you sit. If you play well, you continue playing. Like, up until when Aaron Hicks uh, got benched last week, it seemed like they were just going to continue giving him a million chances. Or until they brought up this kid, Oswaldo Cabrera, IKF seemingly had a free pass. And you know the and that goes back to the way Cashman constructed this roster uh, this offseason, where they were so damn concerned about oh what the new luxury tax was going to be in the uh, latest CBA that they sat around and waited while everybody else before the lockout was making moves while everybody else uh, was adding depth or getting those pieces, the Yankees were just like, oh, we'll wait for whatever's available after this lockout ends. Now, that they keep trying to act like they're the smartest damn guys in the room, and it's come back and backfired on them. And What's annoying with Cashman is one of the things I've accused him of is being, and I I think a lot of people have accused him of, is being such a big prospect hugger. Being that he's so in love with these prospects, but let's look at the recent history. You know, we talk about the baby bombers in 2017. There's only really two of those guys uh, left, Aaron Judge and Luis Severino, when he's healthy. And well, as great as Judge has been, as great as Luis Severino has been, or as good as Luis Severino's been when healthy, the rest of those guys, Gary Sanchez quickly declined. Greg Bird never stayed healthy. They clearly didn't love Tyler Austin. Then you take the next year with Glaber Torres and Miguel Andujar. Glaber's been good this year, but he's not been as the level of player he was uh, prior to the switch they decided to make two years ago when they moved him off of second to shortstop and has kind of put him in a funk that, like I said, been good this year, but he looked like he was on pace to be a consistent all-star player looked like he was on place to be the second best player on this team behind Aaron Judge and he has not been that and then Miguel Andujar had the one great year his rookie season probably should have been rookie of the year but injuries and uh, roster uh, manipulation have plagued him ever since so you know what? What's the point of holding on to all of these prospects if, you know, like I've said, not all of them are going to turn out great. Not all of them are going to play for the New York Yankees. It's just not feasible um, roster-wise. Hell, you know, if you want to hold on to Anthony Volpe because you think he's going to be the next great thing, fine but use the rest of them to make the right trades. And that's why we're sitting here right now. They weren't willing to make the right trades at the trade deadline. They were so 
concerned with holding on to uh, uh, these uh, prospects that it prevented them from going out and getting Juan Soto or prevented them from getting uh, Luis Castillo. And you've seen the benefits it had for those teams. And you know, while we sit here on this Monday afternoon with the Yankees, like I said, still in first place, surprisingly, even as bad as they've played in the last um, month and a half, that first place has been chopped in half. You know, a month ago at this time, they were, what, like 15, 16 games ahead of uh, the Rays and Blue Jays. Today, they're eight. And that's due to their poor play. Not, you know, they had the opportunity in front of them this past week to really build some ground against the Rays and Blue Jays. Had both of them in their ballpark. And they went out there, lost two out of three to Tampa. It probably should have been swept, but they had that big moment in the 10th inning uh, Wednesday night into Thursday morning with the walk-off grand slam by Donaldson. And you're thinking, all right, maybe that's the moment that's going to turn things around. And instead, it once again you know, bites them uh, in the backside. Once again, they can't come up with, uh, you know, the, the continued uh, momentum. You know, Montas goes out there the next night and and pitches like crap. And the next couple days, they're not getting the big hits. You know, we'll see if maybe Benintendi, who's not been great since coming here, his big home run yesterday is the moment that gets them going. But I want to see some fire out of this team. I want to see some anger. I want to see some, hey, this is not acceptable. You know, Aaron Boone should not be the one who is getting the most angry, the most annoyed at what's going on with the team. I mean, you'll just you know, listen to what he said on uh, Saturday to prove my point. I mean, you, we can ask all these questions in regards. We've answered them until we're blue in the face. We got to go out and do it. I got to quit answering these questions about this date and this perplexion, and we got to play better. Period. We and the and the great thing is, it's right in front of us. It's right here, and we can fix it. It's right here. It's there, and we can we can run away with this thing. And we got the dudes in there to do it. We got to do it. You know. We, we, if we don't score, tough to win. And I'll answer these same questions. Am I perplexed? What's yeah, I am. We got to do better. Now, how is it that he's getting that annoyed? He's getting th- that mad, but you're not seeing it out of the players. I mean, the most angry that we saw any player get over this weekend was when Judge thought initially that Manoa hit him on purpose, and then you saw Garrett Cole, the the way he reacted coming out of the dugout. Quite frankly, I wish we would have seen some of that emotion, some of that reaction from Cole on uh, Saturday with the, the way that he just split the bit there in the uh, fifth inning. But come on. I mean, there are... 
it's not like you've got a team full of a, a bunch of scrubs here. There are good players on this team. I mean, you're, you have Judge with this amazing, potentially historic season that he was on, but now he's started to cool off, and I'm not sure if it's uh, just going through a cold streak or maybe teams are now pitching around him knowing that he's the only one in the lineup doing anything. But you see, you know, this emotion out of Boone, it fire up uh, the fan base, fire up social media for like a day, but is it going to fire up this team? They keep talking about how they need a spark. Well, usually when you need a spark, you see a team call up a young player, a young prospect. Why the hell would you not call up Peraza with how poorly IKF has uh, played? Or why would you not, if there's a young pitcher in this organization like Clark Schmidt, why would you not bring him up and um, have him start once every five days instead of uh, continuing to trot out there the likes of Domingo Herman? Or why don't you make the bigger push and trade for Luis Castile. Continue going b- back with that. When you know you have a clear history of guys from Oakland coming here and not pitching well. Take Sonny Gray for a- example. Or I believe uh, Estevan Luiza w- had pitched for the Oakland A's before he pitched uh, for the New York Yankees. I mean, Matas has given up as many runs as innings he's pitched here. And you look at his season, he had a under two and a half ERA in Oakland this season and has like a six ERA everywhere else. And now hopefully he's able to turn around. Hopefully this team is able to turn around. You know, otherwise we're going to be sitting here talking about at the end of the year, you know, a year where you're disappointed once again, where you're saying, oh, what could have been after that first three months? And quite frankly, not much is going to change after this year unless Judge leaves as a free agent. You know, you're still going to have Boone as the manager, still going to have the same general manager, still going to have pretty much the same team unless you're able to figure out a way to dump the contracts of Hicks and Donaldson this offseason. Nothing much is going to change. And, you know, fans keep calling for Boone's job. I keep trying to tell you guys, you know, he's just the front guy. He's just the guy that takes the slings and arrows for the organization. You know, I've always said if they're going to be this analytical, if they're going to be doing all of this, every time you go through a bad stretch, if I'm the owner, I walk to the analytics department room, which is essentially right down the hallway from the the Yankee dugout at every game. I walk in there, I grab one of those guys by the collar of his shirt, and like, let's go, walk into the press room, say, Aaron, come down, you're you're not answering these questions, and throw one of these clowns out there. These these analytics guys are gutless pieces of you-know-what because they try to force-feed all of this nonsense down our throats but never have to answer for it. 
And I think a lot of that has led to where this team is right now. That and maybe some of the moves that they made at the deadline have affected camaraderie here. You know, whether it's, you know, bringing in Montas or trading Jordan Montgomery, who was clearly really close with both not just Cole, but especially Jamison Tyon, called him his best friend on the team. I think he's even going to be in his wedding uh, this coming uh, off season. You know, and, you know, they're di- they're definitely missing Luis Severino, not just on the mound as far as his pitching ability, but the the kid brings raw emotion with him every time he steps out there. And that's something you're s- severely seeing and lacking from this team right now. And you'd like to think it's going to get better when you look at the West Coast road trip that they've got coming up. Four against the A's, who are you know destined for last place again. And then three against the Angels, who, depending on how the schedule shakes out here, you might avoid facing Shohei Otani as a pitcher. But before they get to that, you got the Subway Series starting tonight. And what do you know? The next two days, you're facing Scherzer and DeGrom. So the Yankees, they seemingly, they can't get out of their own way. They can't catch a break. And even when... They, you think that they are going to have that moment that turns things around like you thought with the Donaldson uh, Grand Slam the other night? They immediately throw it right in the garbage. Because, let's face it, that moment was only five days ago. But quite frankly, it feels like it was five months ago. All right, a lot I want to get to uh, today. Give you some uh, thoughts on... The Mets, uh, mixing some uh, thoughts on uh, Albert Pujols, his, his hot streak, uh, some football, the uh, the NBA, uh, talk about Paul O'Neill's uh, jersey retirement later on. So plenty left to get to. Please, as I tell you guys each and every single week, sit back, put your feet up, relax, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Now, as I was talking about just a minute with the Yankees, the lack of accountability, um, lack of energy, that's the complete opposite of what you're seeing across town right now in Queens when it it comes to the New York Mets. And yeah, winning brings a lot of energy, brings uh, a lot of fun. But there's accountability there. There's, you know, if you don't hit, you're going to sit. If uh, you're on a hot streak, they ride you. Like, they got moments out of the likes of Vogelback and Naquin. Ruff uh, has given them a spot or or two. And that's put pressure on guys to, you know, keep playing, keep uh, putting up a uh, big performance. I mean, Naquin, he had those, he had that two home run game uh, when he first got here. Then he went on a little bit of a cold streak, got um, sit down for 
a bit to put Canna back out there. And what do you know? Canna rewards uh, Bucks Faith yesterday with uh, a big game, especially late. They're down 7-4, and he was the uh, biggest reason they came back and won the game. Had the game-tying three-run homer in the seventh, and then the go-ahead bomb in uh, the ninth off uh, David Robertson, whom, quite frankly, I was not sure why he was pitching in that game after throwing 36 pitches the night before. But, you know, that's the kind of things that it it takes a a collective... from a collective unit during the course of the season. I mean, last week, it got off to a bad start uh, for the Mets. You know, with not just losing three out of four in Atlanta, but the fact that you thought that their bullpen was going to be run completely into the ground, losing in back-to-back starts, Carlos Carrasco and Taiwan Walker uh, to injuries. But even in losing three out of four to Atlanta, who's uh, gotten hot all of a sudden, DeGrom and Scherzer picked them up the next two nights. Even in DeGrom's losing effort on Thursday, which was not his fault, once again, he gets a little to no uh, run support from the Mets. They went deep in the game, allowing their bullpen to reset, knowing that they had the doubleheader coming up on Saturday against the Phillies, knowing that you were going to be starting some, you know, less than desirable options in Trevor Williams and uh, running David Peterson out there. That's what what you're uh, looking at your big horses doing. That's what you're uh, um, hoping that they do each and every single time out. And now, even though they've lost. Four of their last six in the Subway Series at Yankee Stadium. They've got Scherzer and DeGrom lined up the next two nights to go up against a Yankee offense that has been very pedestrian for the last six weeks. Add that to the fact that I know he hasn't hit much over the last couple of uh, days. Had the big home run in his debut, but hasn't done much after that. But you injected some youth, injected some energy in bringing up uh, the top prospect, uh, Brett Beatty, uh, or Beatty, however we're pronouncing it, uh, for uh, this team. And uh, now that that seemed to uh, really inspire the team uh, for a couple of nights there. Now, they once again have Atlanta right on their heels and can't afford a slip up here because the Braves have gotten hot. They've won 11 of their last 13. Gain, ever since losing 4-5 out of five against the Mets at City Field uh, about two weeks ago, uh, they've been able to gain three games on them in the standings. Currently sit here at 75-48 and 48 with a sizable lead for the first wildcard spot over the San Diego Padres. The Padres who you know, have to be a bit concerned right now, have to have a little bit of you know, buyer's remorse, should we say, with what they're seeing currently from Josh Hader, 
who, you know, maybe the Milwaukee Brewers knew something. You know, I came on here after the trade deadline and ripped the, the Brewers. To, thought that that was the big mistake of this trade deadline. But maybe they, in fact, knew something that the rest of us didn't. The fact that Hayter struggled in July, pitched to like a 12 ERA in July, and has been so bad so far for uh, the Padres that Bob Melvin removed him from the closer role, said that he needs a bit of a break. And, you know, the Padres, they can somewhat afford to do so, even, even though they're only a game and a half, surprisingly, over the Phillies for the second spot in the National League wildcard mix. You look at the National League wildcard, it's really a four-team race. Should we say three teams for two spots? Because I think the Braves are firmly in there. They have won eight of their last 10, 11 of 13, have been playing great baseball. Now, the, and no, don't seem to be uh, looking back. Don't have anyone on their heels. But you have the Padres, Phillies, and Brewers all within you know two games of each other. Padres and um, Brewers are one back in the loss column of uh, the uh, Phillies. So if the Padres. You know, as great as their offense looks, as well as their starting rotation looks, they really want to get going here, want to make sure they lock down a playoff spot. Hayter's got to get himself uh, straightened out here. The the only saving grace for them here is that, you know, they traded Taylor Rogers to the Brewers, and he's been no world beater either. I mean, that, that's the confounding thing about these relievers. One year they're great, one year they're bad, but it's been... Really, you know, fascinating to see how uh, Josh Hader has essentially fallen off a cliff here, fallen um, into, uh, you know, the doghouse so quickly uh, with uh, the uh, Padres. Now, while we're on it, look at the uh, American League wildcard standings where right now you have, you know, essentially a three-way tie for the the first spot. You know, the, the Rays and Jays each have uh, one less loss than the Mariners, but the Mariners have uh, one more win than them. They've played two more games, so that's why their uh, percentage points uh, behind them. And the teams behind them, the Twins, the Orioles, and uh, the Chicago White Sox, none of whom do I really feel good about? None of whom do I really trust because the Twins, it, it seems like they've been shuffling guys in and out of their rotation all year long due to injuries. The Orioles have been pesky, been a fun story, but until you see a young team uh, go the distance like that and, and do it for a full season, it's hard to truly believe that they're real hard to uh, think that, oh, they're going to uh, complete this thing. And then there's the Chicago White Sox, who it's baffling to me with with all the 
offensive uh, firepower that they have and the, the season that they're getting out of Dylan Cease, the fact that they have a run differential of a minus 29. I, and you're seeing foolish things night in, night out by Tony La Russa. I saw this the other night where he intentionally walks a batter with first base open. And that's the, the problem there is, it, you know, the, he's trying to set up the force play at every base. I understand that. But he intentionally walks the batter when there's two strikes and two outs in the inning. And, and two strikes, and the pitcher's looking at Tony like, are you, are you serious here? I had two strikes on the guy, and there's two outs. I can get this guy out. Tony, I don't like to be an ageist, but the game is starting to look like it's passing Tony LaRusso by. And if the White Sox fail to make the postseason after all the preseason hype about them, if you're Jerry Reinsdorf, you've heard how you know pissed off this fan base has been, how they've been booing Tony every uh, single night. How do you not make a move and send him back into retirement if this is ultimately the fate of the White Sox season? Now, what is one of the best stories in baseball right now? Now, is not just the recent hot streak of the St. Louis Cardinals, but a big reason about that hot streak is the continued retirement tour of Albert Pujols, who you thought that this was just a oh symbolic gesture that he wasn't going to provide much for this team. And in the first half, it didn't look like that. It, no, clearly it was a symbolic gesture uh, for him to be on the all-star roster based on the way he played in the first half. But in the second half of the season... He's been on fire. Now, all year long, he's been mashing uh, left-hand pitching. But in the second half so far, he's you know, slugging 500 has, uh, or slugging over 900, got an on-base of 500, has been on a tear, especially over the last week uh, with five home runs and 11 RBIs. And it was fun to see in... For the second time in a five-game stretch, a multi-home run game out of uh, Pujols on Saturday against uh, the Diamondbacks. And what this hot streak has done for Pujols, I know he's continuously said, this is it no matter what. I'm retiring. I'm, I'm done. But I pray that the streak that he's on lasts for these final six, seven weeks of the season. Because now it's put him within reasonable reach here. The Cardinals have 42 games left in the season. And Albert Pujols is currently sitting here at 692 career home runs. I've never seen in my lifetime someone hit 700 home runs. Now, I knew Bonds did it, but... Who knows how real that is? No, I knew that Bonds was essentially a video game based on what had been put into his body. Clearly, I was not old enough to see Hank Aaron or the legendary Babe Ruth uh, do uh, that either. 
But now we got a chance for the fourth player in Major League history to hit 700 home runs. The first to do it cleanly since the legendary Hank Aaron um, passed Babe Ruth um, almost 50 years ago. Hopefully, hopefully he gets this done. Hopefully he's able to pull off this what would be a remarkable, unbelievable feat, especially when you think about how his career, let's face it, started to fall apart when he played for the Anaheim Angels. He had some good years, but he was nowhere near you know, what they called the machine that he was with the St. Louis Cardinals the first time around. So very hopeful that Albert is able to pull off this very historic feat. Got to take another break here, come back on the other side, turn my attention to the NFL, continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Over the last couple days, I was very pleased to see that there was finally changes being made to some of the rules in college football, especially when it pertains to targeting and faking injuries. Some of the rules in college football, especially two rules that I think for the longest time have needed to be tweaked, have needed to be adjusted, quite frankly, because they've really, you know, either didn't make sense or were just a wee bit unfair. You know, they, they, we knew that they had made in the offseason a tweak to the, the ball carrier rule where you can't fake the slide anymore. You know, Kenny Pickett kind of ruined uh, that for any everyone else in the uh, ACC uh, championship uh, game. And... Uh, you know, they also added to the mix here where replay officials may adjust the game clock if a ruling is overturned with less than two minutes remaining in the game or the first half. That's uh, 
uh, a pretty good rule, as well as uh, the illegal touching rule by ineligible players. But the, the two biggest things that they adjusted were, you know, players uh, when it came to targeting and faking uh, injuries. For, I mean, it, it's so annoying when you see a team marching down the field late in a game or late in the first half, and all of a sudden the offensive lineman suddenly right then at, at that moment as they're about to spot the ball falls to the ground claiming that he's got a cramp, falling to the ground reacting as if he just got shot at that given uh, moment. I mean, please, come on. It, 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 it comes off as insulting to every single last one of us' intelligence. So now there's going to be uh, the, the school and the, the conferences can uh, report to the NCAA uh, the potential of faking injuries uh, to uh, nationally coordinated officials, which could, which could lead to penalties toward that program, such as uh, fines, even potential suspensions. And quite frankly, that, that to me is a, a long time coming. You've got to outlaw that. It, it's, it's bad enough when we see it in the pro ranks, and it does go on in, in the NFL. But in, in college, quite frankly, it comes off as uh, shameful. But even more so, I love that they adjusted the targeting rule. You know, that now you can appeal potential suspensions from targeting. Remember, if you were ejected in the second half of games for targeting, you couldn't play in the next game. If in the first half you're ejected, oh, you just have to sit out the first half. But second half, you miss the entirety of the next game or of the first half of the next game, which to, to me, you know, targeting at times can be the hardest thing to, to rule on because we, we clearly see when there's the guys that lead with their helmet and commit the cheap shot or, you know, when there's the quarterback sliding late and the guy still dives at them anyway. But what I've always felt is unfair is when the guy's leaning down, leading shoulder first, but all of a sudden the the ball carrier scrunches himself down, lowers uh, the, himself, and when the defender was originally targeting the ribs or shoulder or arm, and it, instead, due to no fault of his own, targets the helmet that to me is something that they should have always had as a possible appeal and i'm glad that they're finally looking at that glad that that's finally going to be up for discussion now another thing i'm glad about unless there's been uh, some kind of uh, change in the the last oh hour since i started recording uh, this podcast as of right now, it it does not seem like there's any uh, you know overly severe injury to uh, Kevon uh, Thibo of the New York Giants. He left last night's game uh, due to a um, a right knee injury, and as Adam Schefter is reporting uh, just now, I'm looking at this. 
There's no structural damage to his ACL or meniscus, but they did uh, reveal a sprain in his MCL. So he'll miss, you know, three to four weeks there. To me, that's the best news that you could find out there. I mean, it would have been better if it, it was just you know, a week or two and, hey, you have him for your opener uh, uh, against the Titans uh, on September 11th. Maybe that he, he still might make that considering we've got three weeks until the season starts. But seeing these, how important he is for the future of this team, they might decide discretion is the better part here. But even though he walked off uh, on his own, we've seen so many times where guys, even when they walk off on their own, it come out to being something uh, bigger than that. That's why you know, I was really thankful and happy when I heard the results of the Zach Wilson surgery last week didn't show anything worse than a meniscus tear. Because you know these, these are young guys that you hope still have their entire careers ahead of them. And you don't want them already dealing with the injury bug at such a an early stage of their career. Um, you know, one guy who, quite frankly, and I don't wish injury on anyone who I, I couldn't care less if he deals uh, with the injury bug, quite frankly, is Deshaun Watson, who I'm a little bit annoyed with the NFL, the fact that they decide to just settle with him and not really uh, drag this out, uh, go full throttle on uh, their demands for uh, a full year or more suspension against him. And I, and I get it. They're, they were worried about that, oh, if it, this appeal uh, drags out, that it, it would drag into the season and that he, he would be able to play in, until then. But you could have sent a very strong message here to all of your female fans, all of the females that work within front of the front offices of NFL teams, as well as uh, on game day staffs. I know there's uh, a few of those around the league that, hey, we're taking this serious now. We actually care about sexual harassment, uh, and uh, punishing those who create this kind of uh, um, misconduct who are not showing 100% respect toward uh, women. Because let's face it, so far to Sean Watson, his apologies have not been about his actions. It feels like it's been more so apologizing uh, about the fact that he's brought a bad light onto him himself rather than feeling any sympathy for these women at all. And I'll tell you, the NFL is going to be on him like a hawk now because he's going to have to go through certain sensitivity trainings, certain therapies. They're going to make sure he's taking this stuff seriously. Otherwise they may come down and crack down on him harder, but you know, the, we all knew at the time six games was way too light of a suspension for him. He should not have been suspended the same amount as someone failing a PED test or less than a guy uh, 
suspended in Calvin Ridley, uh, who got the full year for gambling. He should have gotten the full year plus as well and shown that this will truly not be tolerated. And now, now it feels like, you know, the the NFL agreed to 11 because of the big publicity that it's going to get out of this with the fact that you look at when he comes back. Week 13 against the Houston Texans. You're going to tell me all eyeballs, even as bad as uh, the Texans are going to be, and as you know, probably average as the uh, Browns will be without him. I think Jacoby Brissett will be I, but he won't put the, the Browns in a position to be a contender like many people were hoping and expecting looking at the rest of this roster. But I don't know. As I said, I'm a bit disappointed by the, the uh, final result of this. So now Tom Brady came back to uh, practice with the Bucks today. Finally, after what was the weirdest, uh, I don't know whether you want to call it disappearing act, uh, leave of absence from a team, whatever you want to title this, be my guest. I've seen, because we've never seen a player, unless there's a true legitimate reason to just walk away and take personal time off during training camp. Essentially, if by all sounds of things, it sounds like he went on vacation. It sounds like he had some pre-family vacation planned here. And you know, you're just glad that it wasn't anything wrong with Giselle, his kids, either of his parents. Cause that, you know, when you hear someone say that, oh, they're taken of leave of absence for personal reasons. Unfortunately, that's the first thing that comes to your mind is, oh, was something wrong with their family? Is someone sick? Someone um, medically not well? Everything turns out right with the family. But you start to wonder, is maybe Brady having some second thoughts on this comeback? And that was the first thing that came to my mind uh, on this. Not... You know, the idea that Reddick tried to throw out there last week that, oh, he took this time off to uh, go be one of the celebrities in uh, The Masked Singer coming back next month. No, that if he did that, that he would get crucified, get killed by everyone out there for even trying to pull off that kind of nonsense. He, I, people would never forgive Tom Brady for doing that. But... You know that this, uh, you know, the time away. Maybe he was doing a little soul searching as well, and wondering, did I make the right decision? Because you look at what's gone on here. He still does not have Chris Godwin. Who knows when he's gonna come back? Gronk claims to be fully retired this time, although maybe Tom talks him out of it. And it seems like every time you turn around, there is a problem with the Buccaneers' offensive line. They've already lost Ryan Jansen for possibly the year. 
Uh, over the weekend, they lost uh, Aaron Stenny, who was competing for the left guard spot. And although they have guys there that are competing for that role, there's only so many. There's only so many bumps. There's only so many times that you can get kicked in the gut like that, or uh, lose a piece of depth before you start to look around and be like, "Uh oh." We're running out of people here because we're out of without Jansen for possibly the season. Now we lose Stinney. They already lost both of their guards this offseason uh, with Marpet retiring and Kappa going to the Bengals. Now you have this thing uh, with Tristan Wirtz uh, dealing with an oblique strain. And though, although you don't worry about that too much with an offensive lineman because these guys aren't typically your chiseled uh, six-pack guys like a, a tight end or a wide receiver would be. The oblique we've seen be an injury that tends to linger, tends to be, you know, a continuous problem for players and teams. So, you know, maybe Brady is starting to have some uh, questioning on whether he should have came back to uh, this team. I mean, the only bigger uh, story with Tom Brady in the last 48 hours than, oh, what's going on with him, is the news that Dana White claimed over the weekend, claiming that he tried to help broker a deal to get Tom Brady to the Oakland Raiders back in 2021. He was a free agent. And now, now, it all makes sense because remember about a year or two ago, Brady was doing a podcast somewhere where he was almost laughing at a team choosing to keep the current quarterback over bringing him in. Now, it's funny to think what could have happened, what might have happened if you know John Gruden wasn't the head coach of the Raiders. And, and what what's funny about all of this, you know, reading the comments by uh, Dana White, he was on uh, this uh, ESPN special. I think it was on ESPN Plus called UFC with the Gronks, you know, hanging out with the Gronkowski family, and he said, "quote It was almost a done deal, and at the last minute, John Gruden blew the deal up." John Gruden, it felt like the entire time he was the head coach of the Oakland, now Las Vegas Raiders, was looking for a reason to either replace, bench, kick to the curb, whatever you want to call it, Derek Carr as his quarterback. He has the opportunity to bring in the greatest of all time, doesn't have to give up any assets, just sign him as a free agent. And he says, nah, not going to do that. I mean, Al Davis must be rolling in his grave. Mark Davis, while he's getting his ridiculous haircut, must still be thinking to this day, why the hell did I bring this clown uh, back here? I mean, the best thing that could have happened to the Las Vegas um, Raiders is all that went on with uh, John Gruden last year and uh, the the, uh, racist emails. I mean, yeah, it's bad to know that the racism still exists in this world but hell 
for them, at least it got him the hell up out of there. Now, before I get the, the hell up out of here, I'm going to take one last break here. Come back on the other side, talk about the Knicks, and some final thoughts on the retirement of Paul O'Neill's jersey. Can T keep it at sports with M3? I'll be back. No surprise over the last couple of days that LeBron James would sign the two-year max extension with the Lakers and commit to them for at least the next couple of seasons as being their top star. You would still like if uh, now Anthony Davis would step the hell up and take some of the burden off LeBron having to be that team's best player and max LeBron out at only playing, you know, about 60 games per season and not so many back-to-backs. But clearly at this age, LeBron is still one of the top two to three players in this sport and looks like he's still got plenty of tread left on uh, those tires there. But the, the key factor in this deal is it's a two-year, $97.1 million extension. I mean, God damn, the, the, this extension now makes them uh, in total career earnings between this year and next year uh, the highest grossing player in or, or highest earning player in NBA history at $532 million. And that's still not even in the top five of all of his, you know, no uh, earning power when it comes to all of his endorsements and other business adventures. But the key point here is what it allows him to do because there's a player option for the second year where he can opt out and become a free agent prior to the 2024-2025 season. And at that point, we expect his son, Bronny James, LeBron Jr., if, if you want to call him that, to be entering the NBA. And LeBron has long said that he would love to play his final year in this league with Bronny. If that's going to happen, let's hope he does not get drafted by the Cavs. Because can't you see Dan Gilbert just being that guy, that curmudgeon that says, nah, screw you, LeBron, you left me... Tr- twice, even though you gave me a title, I'm not letting you play your final season with uh, Bronny. So hopefully that happens. That would be the coolest thing that's happened in professional sports since the Griffies played together back in uh, the early 90s. If you saw the James uh, combo of father-son playing in the NBA together somewhere eventually. Now, the, the Knicks have recently uh, began, once again, their uh, pursuit of Donovan Mitchell. And I could understand on both sides of the aisle why this fell apart you know, about a month ago. When 
you look at the Knicks worried about giving up too much, uh, giving up you know, as what was reported as many as seven first round picks and all of those young players for one player in Donovan Mitchell, who while he's very good, he lacks size, is not a great defensive player, and they would get killed defensively um, at the guard position between him and Brunson, both being uh, score-first kind of players and lacking uh, uh, the size to go against certain uh, uh, guard combos in the Eastern Conference. But I could also understand the Jazz's way of uh, looking at things, realizing that, hey, we got four first-round picks for Rudy Gobert. We should be able to get more than that for Donovan Mitchell. And, you know, they have kind of been what has caused the standstill in any trade discussions this NBA offseason. Why we sit here on this second to last Monday in August and Donovan Mitchell is still a uh, Utah Jazz or why Kevin Durant is still a Brooklyn Net. Because if Rudy Gobert, good player, you know, all defensive type center, can get you four first round picks, you should damn sure be asking for the sun, moon, and every single star in the galaxy for a young player like Donovan Mitchell, who's only 25 or 26 years old. And if you're the Brooklyn Nets, when you have Kevin Durant still with four years left on his contract, a contract extension that hasn't even started yet, be asking for heaven and earth when it comes to possibly trading him. The, the one thing that I find confusing here is when it comes to the Knicks, we saw how well R.J. Barrett played last year, how he grew as the season went on, and how he continues to grow e each year. But the Knicks don't seem fully convinced on him and uh, don't seem uh, fully convinced that he's worthy of the four-year $185 million max contract uh, offer that they can offer him at any point now and, and lock him down for years to come. And you also have not just people within that organization, but you have the head coach in Tom Thibodeau who would rather trade him in a deal to the Utah Jazz than give up this kid, Quinn and Grimes, who... Had his moments last year. He looked all right. He's no scrub. But let's not forget, there were periods of time last year, whether it be due to injury or due to you not trusting him, that you weren't playing him. There were times you went six, seven games in a row with him not playing, and not all of that was due to injury. He only, like I said, he only played 46 games last year in his uh, rookie season. And while he showed moments that he's a good defensive player, could shoot well from three, has some size to him at 6'5", at uh, the uh, shooting guard position, I don't know if I'd be so quick to give up on Barrett, a guy who's more proven in this league, for someone in Grimes 
who you know you were able to get from the Clippers on draft night and has only played in a half a season worth of games. To me, if I'm going and getting Donovan Mitchell, I'm wanting to pair him with R.J. Barrett. I'm wanting to pair him with you know Mitchell Robinson and any young players that I don't have to give up in uh, a trade with the Utah Dallas because you're going to have to give up uh, somebody. You're not going to be able to give keep all of these guys, not all of, you know, Emmanuel quickly, Obi Toppin, uh, Quentin Grimes, and Mitchell Robinson. You know, at least two of them are going to have to go in in any prospective uh, deal or potential deal, excuse me. But, you know, the, you know, the, Somewhere along the way, there's got to be some kind of meeting of the minds here. And somewhere along the way, the Knicks have got to make, you know, a big move. You know, their big move cannot be saying, oh, we brought in Jalen Brunson. He's a good player, but they need to get that player that takes them to the next level without giving up every single asset so that at some point, if they want to go get another star in the next couple of years, they're still in position to do so. But after last year, what was a step backwards, this year needs to be the step forward that you thought the 2021-2022 season was going to be, especially coming off of um, making the playoffs as a four seed in uh, the previous year. And finally, the closeout, you know, as dreadful and miserable as the Yankees have been for the last six, seven weeks. Yesterday was one of those moments as a Yankee fan. You love being a Yankee fan because you got to go down memory lane. And that was the retirement ceremony uh, for uh, number 21, the uh, the retirement of Paul O'Neill's number meaning no one ever again in the history of the Yankee franchise will wear 21. Him becoming the 25th player slash manager to get this honor. There's uh, 24 numbers in total uh, retired, but uh, remember the number eight is retired twice for Yogi Berra and Bill Dickey. And yes, there is an argument to be made that the Yankees have kind of bastardized this, have kind of neutered the whole honor of having your number retired. But I, I look at the, the list and there's really only maybe three guys that I think I overly have a big problem with. Maybe Elston Howard, maybe. But the two that I have a big issue with are Reggie Jackson and Roger Maris. Roger Maris, yeah, he had the incredible 1961 season, had some really good years with the Yankees, but he he's not in the Hall of Fame. He didn't last incredibly long in the big leagues due to injuries, unfortunately. And Reggie, well, he's got the whole moniker, Mr. October, uh, was a feared slugger in his time. People forget. While he won two titles here with the Yankees, he was only a Yankee for five years, and he won three with the Oakland A's. So, 
there's a, a real argument to be made that number 44 should not be retired with the Yankees. But to me, this was a, a no-brainer, a no-doubter to get Paul O'Neill's a number retired. And I'm glad that they waited and and didn't do it right away. No, obviously glad you do it while the guy's still alive, even though he's he he's still relatively young in his early 60s. But glad that we didn't just do this in like 03, 04. That would have been uh, relatively easy. Do this later on where you can take that trip down memory lane and think about all those great times. And, you know, while Paul O'Neill was not a Hall of Famer, he was so important to the turnaround of the New York Yankees. Remember, late 80s, early 90s, this franchise sucked. They were awful, all right? They, they were as low as low could be. Now, George was trading away prospects for for players that didn't, you know, fill the bill here. I mean, the, the most uh, famous one was trading Jay Buhner for Ken Phelps, trading uh, the... The, the the likes of uh, Drayback trading uh, the, uh, the, the likes of Jorge Rijo, uh, amongst others who would turn out to be very good players who, who knows, might have been better than that had they uh, stayed in uh, the pinstripes. But to me, I've always said that there were three moves that turned the Yankee franchise around. One, of course, was George Steinbrenner, uh getting at the time of banned for life from Major League Baseball would eventually uh, get that turned around in like three or four years. But that allowed Gene Michael to run the organization the way it was needed to be and have a true rebuild instead of always trading away prospects for the quick, quick fix. Then... There was Bernie Williams coming up and having his success. Because who knows, if Bernie doesn't have immediate success, it, it wasn't good. Maybe it doesn't provide the opportunity for what was known as the core four. Jeter, Posada, Mariano, and Andy Pettit. No, if, if Bernie was not good, maybe when George came back in, in, into power, he tries to trade all of them. And believe it or not, Tried to as well. That There was always talks of putting Posada in a deal for potentially getting Randy Johnson. Or we remember before 96, them not being sure about Jeter and potentially trading uh, him for or trading Mariano or Pettit for Felix Fermin. And imagine how different Yankee history would have been if those happened. But along with those two things, I've always said that the, that trading for Paul O'Neill in November of 92 really helped turn this thing around because he won with the Reds. He did not like losing, was not going to accept losing, added a mindset to that clubhouse that, you know, losing cannot be accepted. It cannot be tolerated anymore. And at times, was he over the top? Sure, with how short-tempered he could be with the media, but and how you know dramatic he was with 
always knocking over the water cooler and, you know, short he was with some of his answers. But it provided the mindset that that Yankee team sorely missed, had badly needed. And he wasn't just, he wasn't along for the ride. He was the Yankees' right fielder, everyday right fielder from 93 through 01 and was as important as anybody uh, could be. Now, maybe he didn't put up the most gaudy statistics every single year, wasn't you know always leading the team in home runs or RBIs, but when the moment mattered, you always wanted Paul O'Neill out there. You always wanted Paul O'Neill in the big spot, and while he wasn't you know a gold glover, he had a good arm, very good arm, and made the plays that were needed to be made, even when battling through injuries. I mean, think back to the game five of the of the '96 World Series. He's only out there playing right field because there's no DH in Atlanta, and he's badly hobbled. Wetland gives up that line drive to right field on the final play of the game, and you're thinking, oh, it's a double into the gap, and somehow Paul O'Neill tracks this thing down on uh, just one leg and you know, puts the Yankees in position of being one game away from winning the World Series. And he was part of so many remarkably great, important teams in my childhood. And I'm glad that he finally got this moment, finally got this time to be spotlighted in Yankee forever. And who knows who the next number is going to, to be? Who who knows when it's going to be? I don't th- see. I, I don't think as much as I like the guy, I don't think it can be Tino Martinez because then uh, he was not as important to the Yankees um, overall turnaround and was not a Yankee as long as Paul O'Neill. And then if you put him in, I think you're opening a Pandora's box where then, oh, you got to put in David Cohn. And then if you put in David Cohn, you're going to have to put in uh, either you know, someone like a CeCe Sabathia or a Mike Messina. And you, you start getting to the point of, oh, when does it become too much? Hopefully, at the end of this year, and this year they start to turn things around. Hopefully yesterday was that rallying cry beyond just Boone slamming the table on Saturday. Hopefully, you know, seeing Paul O'Neill's um, jersey retirement was a rallying cry for this Yankees team. And it's a rallying cry for Aaron Judge. No, because he's carried this team for the most part this year, albeit the slump he's recently been in. And showing what could happen if you're a Yankee forever. Because, you know, while Paul O'Neill is not a lifetime Yankee, he's treated as such. Now, who knows if he had left as a free agent uh, during that time and went somewhere else, he probably doesn't get his number retired. But because he won four titles in five years with the Yankees, big part of their turnaround, and um, I don't think it can be... uh, uh, held out how much the fans loved him. His jersey got uh, re- uh, retired. If Judge is a Yankee for the rest of his life and keeps on the pace that he's going on, he could very much so 
be that next guy that is one day having his jersey honored with a retirement ceremony in Monument Park. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 for Monday, August 22nd, 2022. Everyone, please, have a great night. Have a great week. Stay safe. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Not least. I'll be back.